Daniel chapter 9 this morning. The Bible teaches us that God has sovereign control over all things. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. Job 42.2, Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no plan of yours can be thwarted. Isaiah 14.24, The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely just as I have intended, so it has happened, and just as I have planned it, so it will stand. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 say, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like Me. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all My good pleasure. The Bible is full of of truth that tells us that God is in control of all things. Isaiah 65:24 before they call I will answer. He knows what's going to happen before a person even asks. While they are speaking I will hear. Ephesians 1:11 we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. 1 John 3:20 God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. You see, God has sovereign control over all things. He never reacts. He is not bound by anything outside of Himself, including time and human action, whether good or evil. Those things do not constrain God as if He's just in control of part of the universe and these other things are outside of it and and God responds to those. God is in control of all things. Everything Isaiah tells us, everything happens exactly as God intended it because He planned it all. He planned every single aspect of the universe and time and space to happen as it does. That's why He can know it all because He has planned it all. And Jesus even taught us that God knows what we need before we ask Him. Remember Matthew 6, 8? Your Father knows what you need even before you ask Him. This is not a guess. Uh, I don't know if you've heard about Amazon, but Amazon's now starting to learn what people buy from their website. And as they learn what you buy, they start to anticipate what you're going to buy. So you, you've seen the, if you use it all, you, you get emails or recommendations on your homepage of what you should buy. But they're actually taking it one step further and they're actually bringing the products near you to a distributor near you so that you with the expectation that you'll buy it at some point and then they can quickly ship it. They won't have to spend as much on shipping. Okay, that, that's an insightful estimation, but that's not how God is with our prayers. It's not that He just knows so much and He, oh, well, based on all of the way you've chosen things in the past and made choices, then I can have an insightful estimation that this is probably what you're going to ask for. I'm 95% sure you're going to ask for this. No, God knows it all. He knows what we need before we ask Him because He's planned it all. And so, if we affirm all that the Bible says about God's sovereign control, then why pray? Here, in Daniel chapter 9, we have an answer by way of an example of a man for why we should pray even though we have a sovereign God. Let's read our passage here this morning. We'll just read verses 1 to 19 and then we'll finish up the last part of it uh, next week. But Daniel chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. 
In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who made king, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jer- Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from Your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, open shame. As it is this day, to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against You. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His teachings which He has set before us through His servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed Your law and turned aside, not obeying Your voice, So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against Him. Thus, He has confirmed His word which He had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, All this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from your iniquity, from our iniquity, and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for Yourself as it is this day, we have sinned. We have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all Your righteous acts, let now Your anger and Your wrath turn away from Your city Jerusalem, Your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and Your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of Your servant and to His supplications. For Your sake, O Lord, let Your face shine on Your desolate sanctuary. My God, incline Your ear and hear. Open Your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by Your name. For we are not representing, or we're not presenting our supplications before You on account of any merits of our own, but on account of Your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action for Your own sake. O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel knows something that we ought to know as well, and that is that because God is sovereign, we must pray. Because God is sovereign, we must pray. 
we, we know that, that Daniel uh, prays because of God's sovereignty, because of verses 1 and 2. We see that Daniel learns of God's plan. Daniel learns of God's plan in verses 1 and 2. The setting here is that uh, this is the first year of Darius's reign. And we know that from the kingdom of Babylon to the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, uh, there has been a transition. The, kings, the Medes and the Persians have overtaken the Babylonians. And now it's been 12 years since the last vision that Daniel received in Daniel chapter 8, which was the third year of Belshazzar's reign. Twelve years have passed since that last vision. It talked about the, uh, the leader that would, that would rise up against the Jews, Antiochus Epiphanes. Here now in Daniel chapter 9, the year is 538 B.C. and Daniel is over 80 years old. And he was likely around during the time of Jeremiah the prophet. Maybe he even had, had heard him in person as a young boy back in Israel. But now he's far away from there. Jeremiah's dead. And he goes back now, Daniel does, to read Jeremiah's prophecy, to, to read the Scripture that Jeremiah had recorded. And so he goes back and studies. Let's turn to Jeremiah and see this, what he was looking at. Jeremiah chapter 25. few passages towards the front of your or a few books towards the front of your bible Jeremiah chapter 25 what was Daniel reading when he determined the number of years that the captivity would last apparently he had heard this at one time and maybe even had the records but hadn't really considered it until now and now 538 BC Daniel comes to this passage in Jeremiah and studies it and ponders it and thinks about it for his own people, what it means. Chapter 25, verse 11. This whole land will be a desolation, Jeremiah says, and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be, when 70 years are completed, I, God speaking, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. But God says, I'm going to judge you, Israel, through Babylon, and that captivity is going to be for, the end of verse 11, 70 years. Following the 70 years, I'm going to destroy the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. Turn over to chapter 29, Jeremiah. Chapter 29. Here's another passage where Jeremiah makes it clear how long this captivity is going to take place, which will be important to Daniel's understanding of what it means for himself and his people as they're far away from home. Chapter 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. So it wasn't just that I'm going to punish you, Israel, through Babylon for 70 years and then I'm going to destroy Babylon but also, I'm going to bring you back here. You're going to be taken into captivity. It's going to be 70 years. And then 29.10 says, you'll be brought back here to Jerusalem. Okay, so turn back to Daniel chapter 9. This was not the first time, Jeremiah's prophecy, by the way, was not the first time that Israel found out that, that Babylon was going to be the means of God's judgment. Um, God had prophesied through the prophet Isaiah as well as Habakkuk. You remember the story of Habakkuk. Habakkuk 
uh, said, God, how long are you going to let Judah's sin continue? And God said, oh, not much longer. I'm going to bring someone to destroy them. And actually, it's going to be Babylon. Habakkuk says in chapter 2, wait a second. I understand that you ought to bring judgment on Judah for their sin, for our sin, but with wicked Babylon, a, a nation more wicked than us, you're going to judge us with a naked nation more wicked than us? And he says, yes, I am, and I am God, and you have no reason to doubt me or to, to mistrust me, but instead you recognize that, that I am God, and, and I will eventually judge Babylon as well. At the end, Habakkuk says in chapter 3, I, I recognize who you are now, God. You are compassionate and you're gracious. I don't understand all your ways, why you would use wicked Babylon to do such a thing, but I recognize that you are God. So, so the people of Israel, the people of Judah had recognized that God was going to bring about judgment on Israel through Babylon, but here in Jeremiah, or, or there in Jeremiah that we just looked at, we see that it's going to last for 70 years. There's going to be some captivity. But here we find Daniel in chapter 9. The Babylonians are off the scene, but Israel's still far away from home. They haven't been able to return. In terms of the power with regard to Judah, they have not been able to go back to Jerusalem. Daniel would have remembered the beginning of the Babylonian captivity because he was part of that first wave that was brought over to Babylon. Do you remember? It was him and some of the other young men. It was these other three boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that came along with him. And the reason that King Nebuchadnezzar did that at the time was he wanted the best of all these nations that he would conquer. And he would get them at a young age, the wisest and the sharpest, the most fit guys that there were. And he brought them to Babylon. He wanted them to learn the ways of Babylon. He wanted them to learn the culture. He wanted to learn the, the religion so that over time he would inculcate these people so that they actually become a part of Babylon, not maintain their former... Uh, uh, patriotism, but, but rather to, to change over to, to a Babylonian mindset. It would be similar to you going over to another country and living there. You wouldn't remove all of your, your patriotism when you went over to another country. You would still be an American. You would still love your home country, but you're just away. And that's the way uh, Babylon did not want it to happen. They wanted to get you far away from there and teach you the ways of their land so that you would become like them. Well, obviously Daniel did not fall into that trap, but 67 years have now passed since that first captivity. 67 years. Because that happened in 605 B.C. We're now in 538 B.C. And so that means how many years are left before this prophecy will come to be fulfilled? Three years, right? If, if Jeremiah is saying 70 years and it's been 67 then Daniel knows that there's only three years left. Daniel knows the plan of God. He knows exactly what God is going to do with the people of Israel. He knows that He's going to bring His people back. And so what does a child of God do when they know the plan of God? Do they sink into some kind of fatalism? Well, you know, God has the end determined just as He had the beginning. He has it all planned out. The captivity is going to come over, is going to end in three years, so my prayers aren't going to do an ounce of good, and so I don't need to pray. My prayers do nothing. I'm just going to float down the lazy river of life and wait for God to accomplish what He has already planned 
to accomplish. What does a child of God do who trusts in and knows that God is sovereign over all things and knows that He will accomplish His plan? He does not sink into some kind of fatalism. But instead, look at the words in verse 3. So after learning this, I went back in verse 2, I went back into Jeremiah's prophecy, his, the Scripture, saw that it was going to be 70 years. Verse 3, So, so I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplications. Because God is sovereign, Daniel prays for mercy, verses 3 to 19. Daniel learns the plan of God, verses 1 and 2, by searching the Scripture. What is it that God's going to do? And then once he determines it, he prays. The setting of his prayer is found in, the first, uh, in verse 3 and the first part of verse 4. Uh, he does it with fasting, verse 3 says, with sackcloth and ashes. It's a sign of mourning. Okay, the, the idea of fasting is not a way of, hey, wake up, God. Time to wake up. Listen to me. That's not what fasting does. Okay? God listens to all of our prayers, but for the Old Testament Jew, uh, you have to recognize that meal preparation was an extremely time-consuming task, wasn't it? It would require... Uh, we we uh, experience this some when we go over and visit in other countries that are less uh, well-off as we are financially. The, the, the ladies often get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and start working on the, the meals for lunch. Uh, for the for the church and so that kind of thing happens a lot. Meal preparation was time consuming. They couldn't go to uh, McDonald's there in in Babylon and and uh, just have the food ready for them. It took time and so what that meant is when they were fasting, it would eliminate all of that preparation that was required for meals. And so it would say, God, I have a singular focus right now. My focus is not on the meals. That while I'm preparing meals, I'm praying. But I'm going to set all that aside and give all of my attention that would otherwise have been spent on something else to pray to you. Now, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't pray while we're preparing meals. Okay, That's a good thing to do. But it's also a good thing to set aside some time that you would have been doing something else. Set that aside and give your singular focus to prayer. That's what Daniel's doing here. The structure of his prayer includes three main elements as we see it here in verses 4 through 19. First, he begins with praise and adoration. He praises God for who He is and what He's done. Second, he confesses sin. This is what you probably should have noticed as we read through. Lord, we have sinned. Our sins are heavy. You know, we, we, we recognize their weight. We, we recognize that we have brought about this upon ourselves. We'll spend some time looking at that. And then the third element is that he prays for mercy. So praise and adoration, prayer of thanksgiving, or confession, I should say, uh, confession of sin, and then thirdly, he prays for mercy. So first, Daniel begins with praise and adoration. Look at the second part of verse 4. Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. This is a good principled, good principled way to start your prayers every time you pray. Enter into His gates with complaining and requests and into His courts with lots of frustrations and asking. No. We enter into His gates, Psalm 100 says, with thanksgiving and into His courts with what? With praise. We think about God as we're starting to see God as, a, as this great being who is in control of all the universe. And if we came into the presence of, of some lesser king here on the earth, we would praise them. That would be right for us to, to, 
to praise them. And, and if we think about even in terms of uh, you know how England sees their king and queen, you know when they had a king, they would bow down before them. It's an homage thing. It's not a worshiping thing. Okay, it can, it can actually be done in a proper way. An homage, and they they recognize that there ought to be praise and adoration. When you come into the king's court, you don't just come just spouting off all your requests. And so I would say the same thing. This is just an example of how we ought to come before God. That that we ought to come before God with thanksgiving and with praise. God, You are the great and awesome God. You keep Your covenant. You are compassionate to Your people. Okay, start with that when you come into God's presence. He is an almighty God who deserves all of our praise. And, um, and we ought to begin our prayers in that way. Secondly, Daniel gives... Uh, well, let me just show you one other verse that shows that. Uh, well, let's look at several of them. Verse 7, Righteousness belongs to You, O Lord. So while he does start his prayer with God's character and His greatness, he also continues it throughout. He, uh, he, he kind of lines his prayer with, with uh, different praises of God. Righteousness belongs to You. Verse 9, To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. So uh, he's saying, listen, the basis for for our sin is really uncalled for because you are a righteous and holy God. Verse 14, Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. So we're going to see later that that uh, this judgment that He brought upon Israel was actually a righteous thing for Him to do. Verse 15, here is where He begins really His prayer of uh, prayer for, to God for mercy. And He bathes His prayer for mercy in the truth of God's goodness. Verse 15, And now, O Lord God, who have brought Your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. So God, because we've seen You do that before, we expect You to do it again. And we ask You to do it again. So we, we praise God. We, we fill our prayers with praise and thanksgiving of Him. We certainly should start that way and then, and then uh, pray all throughout about God's greatness. Secondly, Daniel gives most of the time for his prayer to confessing sin and the sin of his people, his own sin and the sin of his people. Verses 5 and 6, We have sinned, we have committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, and he goes on. Daniel speaks of the shame of Israel's sin, verses 7 and 8. In the middle of verse 7 it says, to the, to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby, and those who are far, far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds. Verse 8, open shame belongs to us. Okay, uh, Verse 11, indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law. He talks about the scope of the sin. It's not just you know, a few of us were, were kind of unfaithful to You, God. It, it, it covers our whole nation. It's, it's shameful for us, God. We, we want to acknowledge our sin. We, we say to God what our sin is before Him. Daniel recognizes his own sin and also speaks about the sin and confesses it on behalf of the people. In verses 12 to 14, he recognizes the consequences of his sin. You know, God, you are a faithful God, but, but we have been unfaithful to you and we have deserved this judgment. Verse 13 kind of points this out as it is written in the law of Moses. All this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity. You would think that such a great calamity coming on a nation like us would wake us up and we would confess our sin, but God, up until now, 67 years as a nation, we have not repented. The calamity came just as Jeremiah had prophesied and nothing had been done like this in Jerusalem. 
in his history. And yet they had not sought God's favor. Verse 14, however, they recognize that God is still being righteous. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all His deeds. So, Daniel's saying, as I think about all this calamity that's come on us, all this, this is the worst that's ever happened to Jerusalem. When I think about it, I cannot say that you have been unrighteous to us in any way, God. You are completely just in doing what you have done. Your judgment is right. Verse 15, he restates his confession. And now, O Lord God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with the mighty hand. The end of the verse says, we have sinned. We have been wicked. God, I want to be clear. We have sinned. So Daniel's prayer so far has been one of God's greatness. God is holy and He's compassionate. But the people of Judah have been unjust and deserving of God's wrath. God is worthy of our praise and we should pray in that way. Secondly, we should confess our sins to God. And then thirdly, here we should pray for mercy as Daniel does in verses 16 and 17. Pray for mercy, I should say, 16 through 19. Verse 16 reads, O Lord, in accordance with all Your righteous acts, let now Your anger... Here's the asking part of the... It's completely right, by the way, to ask God for things. James says we have not... Because why? Because we don't ask. And sometimes when we ask, we ask with wrong motives so that we can consume it upon our lust and so we don't get what we receive. But but many times we don't get what we, we want, what we desire, because we don't ask. And so it is completely right. God wants us to ask. He wants us to speak to Him. And so what Daniel's doing here is a good thing. But he, again, he starts the prayer with praise and then confession. Verse 16, he says, Now, here, here's what we're asking for you to do, God. Verse 17, Listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications, and for your sake, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. Okay. God, You have been the one who's brought us to this place, but You also were the one who brought our people out of Egypt. And so we're asking You to do something like that again. Take us out from underneath this oppression that we're facing because of our sin. O Lord, in accordance with Your righteous acts, He says in verse 16, do it. He appeals to God's character. Verse 17, notice what He says there, So now our God, listen to our prayer, to the prayer of Your servant and to His supplications, and for Your sake... God, why should You do this? Why should You respond in removing us from this place? For Your own sake. He says it again in verse 18. It appeals to God's compassion. Oh my God, incline Your ear and hear. Open Your eyes and see Your desolation. God, do You see the trouble that's going on with Your chosen people? That that uh, That should affect You, God. And so please, on behalf of Your compassion for us, Please respond. Verse 19, again, he says it's for God's own sake. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action for Your own sake. Why do this? Not just for us. Yes, we want to be removed from this captivity. But do it for Yourself, God. For the sake of Your name. For the sake of Your glory. What great glory You received when You brought Your people out of Egypt. What great glory You can receive when You bring us out of Babylon, out of Uh, this place that is now being ruled by the Medes and the Persians. Daniel prays to God. So, the question that we began with, that we began considering 
was, why pray if God is sovereign over all things? Here in Daniel 9, we have an example of a man who knew the time when God was going to end the captivity and he still prayed. God had determined the end from the beginning. And He does for us as well. He has, he has determined from the very beginning, creation, all the way to the end, what will happen. And yet, we as His people must pray. Why? Because He's told us to in order to bring about His purposes. The way that God brings about the end is through your prayers. Let me just give you an example of this. Let me try to prove this to you. That, that even if we know what's going to happen, we must pray for God to act. Skip forward in your minds to the time of the tribulation that will come on the earth. We have in the book of Revelation a record of what's going to happen. And we know with piecing that together with several of these prophecies like here in Daniel, we know that the Antichrist will rise to power. We know that he's going to make a peace treaty with Israel at the beginning of the tribulation and supposedly solve the conflict that there is in the Middle East. And at that time, He will allow the Jews to renew worship in the temple. The temple will be rebuilt. But the Antichrist will be killed at the midpoint of the tribulation. But then a few days later, He's going to come back to life. And He will, at that time, remove the Jews from the temple and set up an image of Himself to be worshipped. And there will be a series throughout the seven-year period of tribulation of, of seven plagues, three series of seven plagues. The seven, the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, and the seven bowl judgments. And by the end of that time, the Antichrist will be the leader of the entire world, really by the midpoint. He'll be the, the leader of virtually the entire world. But we also know that there will be a pocket of resistance in the second half of the tribulation. Many of them will be killed. Others will flee to the mountains. We know that there's going to be a great battle where King Jesus will ride in on a white horse and destroy the entire army of opposition. We know all of these things because God has told us what will happen. And so, let's think about it in the minds of tribulation saints. Why bother praying to God at all? Right? Why, why bother? God already has it, has it determined. The Antichrist is not going to survive. Christ is going to win. Why pray? Why confess sin? Why even come to salvation? God's going to accomplish whatever He wants. And yet that's exactly what these people do. They acknowledge their sin before God. They come to repentance even though they recognize that the great tribulation is going to come to an end. That that it was in part to judge the nations and partially to wake the nation of Israel up. There is no peace in Israel today and there will be no peace in Israel until the Jews finally repent. What the Jewish nation needs today and every day is not better protection from the United States or a larger coalition supporting them. The nation needs to confess their sin before God. They continue to live in unbelief waiting for Messiah to come, but their Messiah has already come. Praise God that it will not be this way forever in Israel. There will come a day when they look on Him on whom they have pierced and they will be saved. All Israel will be saved. Romans eleven twenty six. So, So let's say they come to the conclusion that God reigns, that God's going to do these things 
we could ask, why pray? Why, Israel, would you pray? Why confess sin? Why talk to God about their belief in the Messiah? And I would say, even though they understand the outcome of those events and see them as they happen, and know that God is sovereign to rule over all those things and that He accomplishes those things, He still accomplishes them through the prayers of His people. So I would suggest to you that God's sovereignty is not a barrier to our praying. You know, I'm going to pray even though God is in control of all things. It's like, God's already determined it, but, you know, I'll just go through the motions He told me to. I'll, I'll do it. Instead, we should do it like Daniel. I will pray, listen to this word, because God is in control of all things. In fact, if you think about it, that's why you do pray. Because God has control. And He can act according to your prayer. If He couldn't act, why pray? We pray to God because He is powerful to bring about the, the change. Now, maybe you have trouble praying as much as you should. It could be that you have an extreme view of God's sovereignty that tells you that because God has planned it all, there's no sense in praying, and so you don't pray as much as you should. But I would suggest to you that if your prayers to God are much less because you think God is in control and your prayers don't mean anything, your, prayer, your understanding of prayer is improper. Okay? Yes, God is in control, but that should not reduce your praying. It should increase it like it does here with Daniel. Maybe you pray less because you don't believe God is sovereign. Maybe you think God's not going to do anything. So why pray? But if your view of human freedom excludes God from acting and keeps you from praying, you don't understand the Bible's teaching on prayer. I would suggest to you that, the, that a healthy view of Scripture fully affirms God's complete and limitless sovereign control over every aspect, over every square inch of our universe. And at the same time, that understanding of God's control should not diminish our responsibility to act and to pray. In fact, it should increase it as we understand, hey, God is sovereign. And do you know what God does? He accomplishes His purposes through the acts of His people, through the prayers of His people. Yes, God could do it without my prayers, but do you know what He's chosen to do? He's chosen to use you to pray. And so pray. Let me conclude with four observations that Daniel, that, that we can learn from Daniel. She helps us in our praying. Okay? Number one, recognize that Daniel prayed. Okay? Just, just pray. It's very simple when we think about it, but hard to do. I, I would say that how long you pray, how often you pray, what you pray is an expression of what you think about God and about yourself. John Owen said it this way, what man is on his knees, he is no more. Or he is, he is that and no more. Okay? You, you want to know who you are as a Christian? Look at yourself and your prayer time. Do you spend time relying on God in prayer or is it all about action? Okay, I'm going to just get out there and do things. I, I need, it's going to get done. I've got to do it. Okay, how much do you rely on God in prayer? I mean, do you think that your sin matters little to God? Do you think that God can't help you? Do you think God doesn't have time to help you? That there's so many people, so many Christians, how could He possibly have time for me? If you think those things, then you won't pray much. 
But do you see your sin is offensive before your Father and in need of regular forgiveness? 1 John 1, nine. Do you know that God loves you and has the power to give you what you ask for in His name? Have you seen Him answer before? Do you believe that God accomplishes His plan through the prayers of His people? If so, then you will pray often. One of the clearest expressions of your faith in God is not displayed in how you act around other people or how you pray in front of other people. One of the clear expressions, clearest expressions of your faith is how you are on your knees. Do you believe that God is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him? Because do you know what the author of Hebrews says? That is what? That is faith. Faith is believing that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. That's faith. Do you believe that He is? All of us will say yes. Is He a rewarder? Yes. Of those who seek Him? Yes. And why aren't we seeking Him? That's faith. It's proactive prayer. Trusting in the sovereign God that He will act according to the people who come to Him. Number two, Daniel's prayer sprung from his reading, studying, and meditation of God's Word. It's amazing that the prophecies of Jeremiah had been unchanged for decades. Maybe Daniel, again, was a young boy when he first heard of Jeremiah or heard from him. But as he reread these prophecies and considered their application for Israel, that's when he recognized what it meant for them as a people and that he, as one of the main leaders of Israel, should confess his sins. As he understood the Word of God more, it naturally sprung forth into prayer to God. Number three, Daniel prayed even though God's, God's plan had already been determined. Daniel didn't say, you know, God's already planned it. He's going to do it, so I'm not going to do anything. He recognized that it was his responsibility to confess sin for himself and the nation and to plead with God to bring to pass what God had already planned. What about us? How should we respond to the plans that God has already fixed? Let me ask you a question. Does God know who will be saved from now until the kingdom? Does God know that? Yes, because He's planned it. Then why bother evangelizing? Why bother giving the gospel? Does God know what you're going to pray before you ask Him? Absolutely He does. So why bother praying? See, this is not an exercise that God puts us through to keep us busy. Well, I've got to give Him something to do. God commands us to evangelize and to pray even though the beginning all the way to the end has been determined. God tells us to do that because the way that He brings about all these things is through your evangelism and through your prayer. That's the way that God accomplishes His purposes. Daniel knew what was going to happen and yet he still prayed. Or I would say it this way, because he knew what was going to happen, he prayed. Number four, Daniel relied on God's grace. What if God, from Genesis 3 on, decided, I'm not going to provide a means for escape for my enemies? What if the story of human history was, God created man, man sinned, God judged man, the end. God would be completely just to do that if that's what He had chosen. To destroy us forever in hell with no means of escape. There's no injustice. 
in a just judge condemning sin. There's no injustice in that. And yet, that's not how the story goes, does it? God instead created man. Man sinned, but God didn't destroy them. Instead, He became man in order to die for man. And He gave them a way to be reconciled to Himself. And that reconciliation affects a familiar relationship between us and God. Daniel understood that. And he relied on the promise of God's goodness to his people. And so he depended upon God's grace. That's the way we ought to come to God in prayer. Trusting that God is a good God and that He wants to answer our requests and that He can answer our requests and He has time to do it. We rely on God's grace. Friends, God is sovereign. And so, we must pray. Let's pray now. Father, this uh, has been for us an exercise in our minds because it, it really can stretch us. We have to think through these things and, and sometimes it's, it's difficult to consider that, that you would have all these things planned. You already know what's going to happen. You even know that I was going to pray just now. And yet we still pray to you because we know that you can act and you can respond and you will according to your your purposes. And you want to do that because you receive more glory when we pray to you and we see you respond to us. Or that's why we pray for each other. That's why we pray for the lost. Because we believe you can act and only you can act. That we can't affect change in ourselves on our own. We can't change the lost to be saved on our own. Because apart from Christ, He says, we can do nothing. And unless You build a house, we labor in vain. And so we must pray. Thank You for the example of Daniel. Thank You for the example of godly leaders who have gone before us, even in our own family and churches and even in this church today. Lord, help us to follow those examples and, and to be people who pray and who trust in You. Not just go through the motions as if our prayers don't matter. Our prayers do matter to You. You love to hear Your people pray. Lord, we are thankful for Your grace upon us. Help us to depend upon it and rely upon You in prayer. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's turn to Him 400... Uh, 400